Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women's Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation. So sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Welcome. This is Lisa Woolfork, and I am here with, as I say every week, a very special episode of the Stitch Please podcast. Because this week, we have Valerie Goodwin, art quilter, world builder, cartographer. I can't even think of any more words. We are going to hear from Valerie in her own words, but the structural elements of her quilting, as well as her Instagram page. If you follow Valerie Goodwin's Instagram page, you will learn that Valerie is a quilter, a creative genius, a teacher, a scholar, and someone who is committed to craft in many aspects of life, especially as I see it around questions and principles of design. Valerie, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the Stitch Place podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. I've been looking forward to speaking with you for quite a long time. I am so honored. I am so honored to even be on your radar. So thank you so much for that. Can we begin with a question about your sewing journey or your quilting journey? Where did it start? Were there twists and turns along the way or has it been a constant journey? How has your sewing coalesced with architecture and design in your current art practice? I think I'll try to cover all aspects of that question. If I miss anything, please let me know. I was born in North Alabama. My dad was a chemist, and he worked for a company that moved us around, and we kind of settled up north in Connecticut. Every summer, my family, my mother, my father, and my three other sisters, we would travel across the Mason-Dixon line down into Alabama to visit our grandparents. And my mother and my father's parents lived in adjacent cities. And my maternal grandmother was a home ec teacher, and she's the one who taught me how to sew. And so I learned to sew, I think I was probably about 10 years old. Interestingly enough, I just learned from my mother that it wasn't quite intentional because my mother wanted me to make clothes for myself and for my sisters. She just told me that that was the plan. But fortunately, I took right to it. I started making Barbie doll clothes. I remember having that little bitty sewing machine. I don't remember. Oh I guess gosh. I cranked it or whatever. Yes, I made yes. For them and gradually she taught me how to make simple clothing. Me wanting to be creative. At one point, I put aside the patterns and I just made things that I know did not look very good when I look back <laughs> on it. But anyway, we all wore them. And at the time, we really enjoyed wearing them. So that's how I started sewing through my maternal grandmother. And in addition, there was a cousin, her name was Cousin Hattie, and she lived with my mother's family. And she helped keep house because my grandparents both worked full time. She was an avid quilter and she would quilt in the winter in peace in the summer. And she made hundreds of quilts and she died a year or two before I was born. I never met her, but I like to think that the DNA of both my maternal grandmother and cousin Hattie are what has become quite a part of my creative life. So I sewed up until I got to, I think it was high school, and then peer pressure set in, and it wasn't cool to do that anymore. 
So I stopped sewing altogether. I didn't pick up sewing again until I was teaching architecture. And that was in, I think it was 1998. And it was just happenstance. I read something called the Journal of Architectural Education. Mm -hmm. And in it, there was an article written by a female professor of architecture. And she had her students study traditional quilt blocks. Wow. And they became diagrams, spaces that became architecture. And something about that just caught my attention. At that time, I was teaching beginning design. And when you teach any design, you have more leeway in terms of how you teach design. And we're taught much like you would see in landscape architecture programs or BFA programs or textile programs. It's the fundamentals yes. of design. I first had my freshman students making quilt blocks out of paper. And okay. they made patterns. And it was great for me to teach them about organizational systems, about color, about value, and all those fundamentals of design. Just much like the woman in the article I read, she had them make a whole building. I was teaching freshmen. So they made small little structures that would house one small quilt. And so that was a way for me to teach them about circulation and human scale, a little bit about color and, you know, those things that architects are concerned with. Then I started teaching sophomore year level design. And so I had other more intricate, more elaborate, more challenging projects that I'm started sure that way. What? Did you hear that? I think that's your Siri. Your Siri is listening. Oh, okay. Siri wants to participate as well. Siri's like, this is great information. Can you say more? Okay. Well, she just said she didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I understand. She is AI. She's just doing her best. <laughs> So I had my students enter a competition that a very well-known quilter had for students in all disciplines of design. The question was, what in your discipline would be the 20th century quilt? I introduced the sewing machine, I think, for the first time in architecture school. And I had jocks showing, sewing. I had, you know, women. I had nerds. I had all kinds of people making things. Some of them made things using the sewing machine. Some of them went to the shop and welded things. But my students won, I think, the first prize that came in first place. Wow. And so my husband, he was also an architect. He looked at me and he said, it looks like you really are interested in this quilting, but you don't know how to quilt. And maybe you should do something about that. Oh. Yeah. And so, you know, I said, yeah, yes, he has something there. So what I did was I took a six-week class at the local community college and we made what's called a sampler quilt. A sampler, yes. Yeah. And so we used the same traditional quilt blocks that the students used in my class and in, from that article. And I made a quilt all by hand. I just fell in love with it. I knew immediately that I wanted to express myself architecturally. And so that is what launched me on my journey to figure out how to work with fabrics, how to be expressive, how to bring in my point of view about design, et cetera. How can I incorporate that in quilting? Yes. It's such a beautiful story because there are some folks who would imagine that architecture is rather antithetical to quilt baking, that architecture is seen as 
for lack of a better phrase, a hard, like you have the hard sciences and the soft sciences. It seems like architecture would be, if anything, a hard art. There's something about the fundamentals and principles, as well as who has been able to enter into that space at all in the past. And so here you are, a Black woman professor. Here you are bringing in and innovating and extending the reach of your students' imaginations and extending what's possible for them in their design thinking. What do you think, as far as you've been able to tell, when you started teaching in that way, did you notice any shifts in their understandings about design that came uniquely from what you were able to contribute to them. The fact that they've won first prize for this competition is a clear sign that your method works and is incredibly effective. But what did you notice as their teacher, like watching them go through the process? Or did you face any resistance or maybe not like fighting resistance, but just a little uncertainty or skepticism on their part? Well, even before I'd answered that question, I was reluctant to bring it into that realm of academia because, you know, okay. quilting is domestic art. What am I doing as a quilter bringing in something that, you know, Betty Crocker might want to do? Mm. And so I was reluctant, you know, really to share that interest within that space. However, I was happy to see that it made me unique. And I didn't really have much pushback as far as that is concerned. And then gradually I saw that my dean gave me more leeway in terms of how to explore that interest throughout the curricula, not only with freshmen and sophomores and so on, but all the way through the program up through the graduate school. I will say that when I was teaching a freshman studio, I had a young man come to me and he said, why on earth would anybody want to take fabric cut it up and put it back together again. What is the point of that? That was kind of an odd little funny thing. That is funny. To ask the one say. But I would say that it became something that really made me stand out a little bit apart from what some of the other people were doing. And I think a lot of the students and the faculty members sort of embraced what I wanted to do with it. I think that was because I was really serious about kind of incorporating some of the pedagogy or some of the things that you would think about as an architect. How can I take those things and translate them into how I approach my work? Yes. So, yes. It's wonderful to see that what looks like a fearless abandonment of the rules and a whole new pathfinding started with a little bit of concern, but you did it anyway. And in the doing of it, you created something utterly unique and remarkable. And that it seems like that's kind of continued to inform your practice moving forward. And one of the things I appreciate about your work is the way that you blend traditional techniques like analog with new technologies like the digital. And I'd love to hear about how that evolved for you, because it seems like here you are in 1998 and you're, you know, just getting the students to think differently. And now you have this really rich relationship between between materials and techniques that are very hybridized. It's like you're not afraid to put anything together. It's really beautiful and inspiring to watch. Can you talk a bit about that evolution or if it was an evolution for you? Oh, it was definitely an evolution. As I said before, I first learned how to make a quilt by hand and I learned traditional techniques. At first, I tried to utilize those 
traditional techniques to do something that was, quote unquote, expresses my architectural background. I found that it was restricting for me, having to have seams and, and corners match and all those sorts of things did not work well for me. And so I learned about fabric collage and fusing, and I gradually started to incorporate mixed media techniques using a little bit of paint. And so it sort of evolved. The more things I knew, the greater my area of exploration was. In addition to that, I started thinking about some of the things I was teaching my students, you know, in particular things about design thinking, about design principles. A lot of times I would consciously or even subconsciously realize that I'm using those basic fundamentals to make decisions in terms of what I do. And then in addition to that, some ways of approaching design that you wouldn't think you would even want to think about expressing in your work. For instance, I was teaching what's called professional practice. And so that's where you teach students about the practice of architecture. As part of that historical background, there was a part where, where we talked about the Beaux-Arts School of Architecture over in, in Paris and started to look at how they created their drawings and how they would compose things. And some of those ideas about composition were some of the things that I started to express in some of my work. I would also say that, for instance, when I would become chair of some of the students' thesis, students mm -hmm. who wanted to do something that related to fabric or clothing design or whatever, they were, I was the go-to person. And so I would take on the challenge of seeing how that they could take that design thinking, you know, like clothes construction, like ruching yes. and gathering how they can take that methodology making form, how that can inform their architectural design. Some of that out-of-the-box kind of thinking encouraged me to think about that in terms of my work. I would also say in terms of technology, we had something called a laser cutter in our school, and we got that maybe 10 years ago. I looked at the machine and I said, hmm, I think I can cut fabric with that. What can I do with that? I taught myself how to cut fabric. I tested over 30 kinds of fabric. I tested, uh, there's three settings, there's speed, there's frequency, and there is power. And so okay. you can change all those settings to figure out how to cut without burning, how to cut smoothly, and that sort of thing. Yes. And so yes. I narrowed it down to several fabrics that seem to cut well. And the thing that I noticed is I should back up. At some point along the line, I realized I like to hover above things. And I like the language of maps, the lines and shapes, but in particular, the lines. And that made me wonder, well, why didn't I even just study urban design? Because that's kind of what that's mm. all about. But anyway, when I started cutting with the laser cutter, I realized that you could cut some really intricate lace-like map lines. Yes. And that kind of pushed my work in another kind of direction and using other kinds of materials and so forth. That's a beautiful answer. And it actually dovetails really beautifully into my next question. How did you arrive at the approach of mapping as a form of visual expression? Because when you just said you like to kind of be above things, like to kind of look almost like a bird's eye view, mm -hmm. that's what we see in a lot of your pieces. It's like you are sharing this vision with all of us. And I wonder how did mapping become part of your creative vocabulary or your creative approach? I was traveling somewhere in a plane and I looked out the window and I saw crop circles. 
And I was intrigued by those crop circles. And so I made a quilt for a niece of mine, kind of a simplified version of that when I saw out my window. So from there on out, I just got really interested in the view from above, aerial views, views of real places or of places that I would just sort of make up in my head. So that's how that began. I think what I appreciated about so much, and I want to show, I'm looking at this piece from the African burial ground that you've created. And if you are a Patreon subscriber, you get to see this too. And so, yeah, you should totally get on the Patreon because we have like so much exciting stuff like this. Black Women Stitch in the Stitch Please podcast is grateful for all the support that made So Black possible. Special thanks to our underwriters, Spoonflower, Thanks also to Moda for generous sponsorship. Thank you, for, thank you, Bernina, for your wonderful support. Thank you also to Amtrak for partnering with us. Special thanks to those who shared resources to equip the space. This includes AccuQuilt, Aurifil, Crimson Tate, So Easy, Ruby Star Society, Free Spirit Fabrics, Kai Scissors. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Special thanks to Focus Right for making the live recording possible through the donation of an audio interface, the Focus Right 18i8. Thanks to the Bridge PAI for the initial funding, and thanks also to the Modern Quilt Guild for their generous support. Thank you all so much for making this possible. So Black is made possible by some amazing people on the Black Women's Stitch team. Christina Gifford, Janelle Velasco, Latrice Sampson Richards, Naomi P. Johnson, Shauna Jefferson, Jill Bates Moore, Nikki Griffin, Coco Springer, Alicia Turlington, and Adrian Dent. And in full Snoop Dogg style, I'd like to thank myself for pulling this together and believing in me. Let's give it up for Lisa Woolford. And if you want to find out what's happening next, follow Black Women Stitch on TikTok and Instagram and sign up for our email list. Check out the Stitch Please podcast with new episodes every Wednesday, including episodes from QuiltCon coming out soon. Can you talk a little bit about this piece, about what this represents? Because it looks to me both aerial, like to see the overview, but it also seems to shift perspective a little bit toward the bottom. Can you talk a bit about this piece, the African burial ground piece, the colors, all of it is just, it's very striking. Thank you. Let me go back to the comment I made about the Beaux-Arts, well, they called it Beaux-Arts, and how the students were taught to compose their drawings. And there was a technique called the analytique, it's A-N-A-L-Y-T-I-Q-U-E, and that's where you would take views of a place, of a work of architecture, from way above or zoomed in. You might even just do a really tiny detail. You would start to merge things or you would overlap things. And so what you see in this particular piece, it's me using some of those ideas. This is based on something that really happened in lower Manhattan. I think it was the early 90s, 1990s. A contractor developer was building a high-rise in lower Manhattan near the courthouse. They went down, they dug down. So New York City has layers. 
Yes. So it has the today's layer. Then you go down, you might have the 1950s layer. You would see sidewalks. You might see remains of buildings, 1800s. And so they went down to the layer that was the 1700s. And it was the layer where, in that particular section, part of Manhattan, the Dutch lived there. Yes. The Dutch, of course, they had slaves. This particular part of town, the slaves would work. Some of them would work in the immediate city around the town green. And that's the triangular spot that you see on the left side, the kind of grayish blue area. Yes. They would work there. Then there's what's called the black line that goes diagonally across. That's the Palisades fence. That's where the word Palisades means fence. Ah, yes. And so they would go through this fence, this barrier. The Dutch gave the slaves this parcel of land above that fence line to live and to plant and to bury their dead. So that was a spot where the slaves would go if they were allowed to travel that part of the city. But really, they were given that plot of land because above that, to the north of that, was where the Indians lived. And the Indians and the Dutch were not in friendly terms. So hmm. if the Dutch were going to be attacked, guess who would be attacked first? Right. Well, we'll put this human barrier. Right. They were like a human barrier. Correct. On the right side of this piece, you see a map of lower Manhattan at a much larger scale. That's what that strip is. And then you see the city as it exists now, and you can kind of see the triangular shape is very similar on, in both sides. So I try to tell the story of today and then back then. And then the bottom is my rendition of what the graveyard might have been like. Yes. And in the far back, you can see kind of ghosted figures of the slaves. You see the gravestones. Either side, it's anchored by an image of a slave on the left and then the Statue of Liberty on the right. Yes. It's such a powerful piece. And it reminds me of lots of things as once. I think that there are a lot of folks who don't know that New York was very popular in the slave trade and that a lot of enslaved people were held captive and enslaved in New York, in New York City, in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Sojourner Truth. For example, Sojourner Truth, the one that people think said, ain't I a woman, was from this area. She was Dutch. She was enslaved by a Dutch family. Her first language was Dutch. She spoke English with a Dutch accent for the rest of her life. Hmm. But she gave that speech, that aren't I a woman speech, and a white lady in the audience translated it into what she thought of was authentic Black speech. That's why we all hear Ain't I a Woman and think that Sojourner Truth said it when in fact, because her first language was Dutch and her English was not Southern because she was from Manhattan uh -huh. and from New York, she said aren't. And so what I appreciate about this story is that we can see all of these things at one time. And that what we what you have given us in this piece is the capacity to see the layers as well. When most folks are just walking around a place, we only see the now. Except for, remember when J.C. Penney's used to be over there in that mall, whatever, like that kind of thing we might have. But we don't have a 100-year view or a 200-year view, you know, or a 300-year view like you have created here. That our vision is so limited. And what I love about what you've done here is that our ancestors, the Black folks who came here before us to make our lives here even possible will not be forgotten. They will not be forgotten because you will not allow that. 
and that you have been able to create and build work that is also a new form of permanence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that this piece holds that together just so so powerfully. And it's just one of the many just amazing things about you and about your work. And I'm going to take the slide down and then we'll bring up another one in a second. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask about permission to fail. You are now allegedly retired and yet you are still teaching. You are still quilting. You are still living, doing amazing things out in the world. I just thought about even in retirement with your amazing workshops, what are some of the tools that you return to with your students again and again? I'm thinking about the permission to fail in order to learn, like it's okay to make mistakes, having critique be part of the learning process and how critique is an important element. But you also create for yourself and your students a relaxed and self-guided form too. So you're just incredibly skillful, right? Between design and architecture and quilting. And you braid that together like so seamlessly. And I wonder if you could share any lessons or any kind of little things that you might do in the classroom or things you might do with your own art practice that we could benefit from. And I was thinking about specifically the permission to fail or about how it's important to incorporate critique into your process rather than after it's all done, but as you're going. Well, that's a very good question because art is a very individualized and kind of a solitary activity. Especially me being retired, I'm not out in the world like I used to be. But when I was teaching, it was part critique, was part of the learning experience. And it was part of how students learn from what they did wrong and how they might think about it in a different way. Critique is a skill. That's just my opinion. I think you have to say things in a nurturing way, although sometimes you may be, you need to be much more direct and challenging depending on who the student is. But you have to make the students understand that that is just another teaching methodology, another way for them to further the lessons that they should have learned or you were trying to impart to them when they were working on a project. I like to bring that in to the fold when I teach quilting classes. And so I think that a lot of students may not get that kind of back and forth in some classes. I'm sure lots of classes do that. But I think that's really important to push people, to get them to think about things a different way, and just have a kind of a back and forth. The thing that I wish for myself that there were others around me so that I could get that critique. And I have to check myself a lot of times and to step back and look at my own work and really think about, well, what are you trying to do? Why doesn't this part work? What can you do differently? You know, that sort of thing. I really wish that I had that right now. And I wish sometimes that I had that interaction out in the world with my architecture students. I've been doing a lot of online teaching and I try to create a setting where I can do a little bit of that virtually, but there's nothing like being able to do that in person. And I'm thinking about, I guess what I wanted to share was the cover of your book, Art Quilt Maps, Capture a Sense of Place with Fiber Collage, a visual guide. I'm looking at this and again, once again, stunned because it seems like what you have created is giving people this powerful invitation to share in the vision 
that you have through this process. Not everyone will be able to be your student in a class. It's just not possible, but everyone can get this book. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what the book meant for you and what some of the excitement or challenges or learnings that you had when putting the book together. An experience that I had making this book is that it made me really reflect on my work and my process and what I do and how to really think about it in an organized fashion that could be understood and imparted to anyone who was interested in this. And so it really helped for me to clarify what I was doing and clarify what I thought was important about my work and about the process. And I was happy that I was able to have three chapters that really illustrate process, the three different projects that if students are interested in trying it themselves as a step-by-step in each of the chapters that deal with that. The other thing that I enjoyed doing was to honor my grandparents and my parents in terms of what they did for me growing up and kind of encouraging me, what they meant to me as an artist. And so that was really warm my heart to be able to do that. I'm so happy that you mentioned your family because it might be, maybe this is part of the answer to this next question. Your workshops and your art do lots of many things, but one phrase I'm really captured by that you said is that you are invested in, quote, empowering transformational relationships, empowering transformational relationships, the relationship to place, exploration of narrative, manifesting, coexisting, multiplicities. It just makes me curious as to how did you arrive at this idea of empowering transformational relationships? It seems like it requires a certain type of awareness to be able to see in the way that you do. And I'm wondering who helped shape this idea for you? Was this something that you have always had or was it something that was contributed that maybe your parents helped to shape it? Of course, you can't really say, what is the secret to being Valerie Goodwin? Like, that's not a answerable question. (laughs) But I am really excited about, I love the phrase empowering transformational relationships. And I think it takes a special kind of person to prioritize that. And so I'm just wondering how you arrived there. I think you have to empower yourself. And so I think that it took something for me to empower myself to try these things that maybe no one had ever tried. Yes. None of this was really intentional on my part. I didn't know that I was going to go in this direction. I didn't even know that I wanted to study architecture. I didn't even know architecture was a profession until I got to college and I wandered into a studio and I saw people doing stuff that looked like stuff I wanted to do. And so I changed majors. I was going to just say a lot of things that have happened to me in my life that have led me to do what I'm doing have been just kind of happy circumstances, just coincidences that have kind of pushed me along. The thing that my dad used to always tell me, Valerie, you work really hard, but maybe you should just work smart. But I've always been a person that had a lot of perseverance and I would just tackle things and I would just push through them until I understood them, would be stubborn enough just to kind of push myself along to do whatever it was I wanted to do. I think perseverance is really, really important. And you have to be willing to make mistakes faster. Making mistakes It's just as important as succeeding. You learn from your mistakes. The faster you make those mistakes, perhaps the faster you will improve and move along in your journey. 
And so that's part of the perseverance is being willing to accept the mistakes and learn from them and hopefully move on to something else, something that you've learned from. Yeah. I really appreciate that because it has that sense of even within your process, there is resiliency. You're meant to do it, get it wrong. That's fine. Try again, get it wrong. Try again. Okay, that's a little bit better. Like that, I think, is the type of really powerful perseverance that I think I am learning from this process that you're describing. It really is so vibrant and so necessary. And I think we have this perfectionist type age, or maybe it's just different personalities, Mm -hmm. where people want the perfect outcome. They don't care about the process. They don't care how long it takes. They want it to be fast, ideally, but the outcome Mm -hmm. is the priority. And it's like, if the outcome is the priority, it seems like you're putting the cart before the horse because you don't get any outcomes without a process. And that process is going to take the time it takes. And you have to have joy in that process, right? I have complete joy when I'm in my studio and I feel like I'm onto something. And I can just spend that time and zone out and just enjoy, you know, moving the needle through the fabric or brushing that paint along the surface or cutting that thing out or ripping that thing out and putting it back together again. I mean, what a wonderful experience sometimes. Oh, yes. And it feels like time stopped for you. Like I could absolutely be in here working on something and three hours have gone by and I didn't even realize. Or it's like, oh, wait, the sun is going down. Wait, the sun is out now. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that happens. I have to admit that now that I've gotten older, I don't spend as much time as I used to. But yeah, this is my little oasis in this space that I'm in right now. I wonder if we could talk a little bit as we're starting to wrap up about your retrospective. You had a retrospective exhibition a little while ago in 2022. Can you talk a bit about that? How many years? Was it 20 years of work that you were talking through? It started, let's see, 1998 was the oldest piece all the way through to last year. Wow. I mean, it was amazing to be in a space and to see your work that way and to see it in a comprehensive way and to see where you started and where you were in the middle of this journey and so on. And so it was quite an experience to have to see your work that way. I mean, you're walking through decades of your stitching, your painting, your growth. Did you have any surprises yourself as you were walking through the studio space? And like, basically, it's kind of like a walk down memory lane, kind of. Or did it feel that, ma'am, girl, I do not know. I do not have any retrospective of anything. So I have no (laughs) idea what that would be like. All I got is some old outfits that I have made and absolutely love. So if somebody put them on a wall in a museum, I'm sure I would be delighted. What was the Uh, sensation? Like walking through, you're like, I did this. Yeah, kind of, you kind of pat yourself on the back a little bit. Yeah, you get to puff your chest out a little bit. It was interesting as they wanted me to fill the wall with more stuff. And there were things that I thought that weren't any good. But I pulled them out and I put it on the wall. And those were some of the words that people responded to the most. And so that was really interesting to me to see that and then to think about maybe I want to revisit some of those things that I didn't think were as successful. Maybe there's something, some some kind of focus or something I can garner from that. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Oh, that's a great idea. And that goes to one of our last questions. What are you working on now? And who do you wish to touch most with your work? Well, the last question is a hard question, but... I know, I know. (laughs) No, but also just like all the questions, you cannot answer any of these questions wrong. (laughs) All of your answers are the right answer. You can see what's behind me. 
Yes, I've been staring at it the whole time. Oh my gosh. So that is a piece that is very meaningful to me. I've been working on it since 2020, I guess. <gasps> and it wow. is about the place that I told you about that I would visit where I learned to sew. Yes, in Alabama. It's the map of that part of the city, Tuscumbia, Alabama. It's got an image of the house that my grandmother lived in. Wow. It's got an image of them when they were young and when they were older. There was a poem that we would see in the den that was on the wall, the house by the side of the road. I mean, so it's really quite meaningful for me. I want to get it done. I want to give it to my mother. So that answers that question. I want to touch somebody. Yes. In this case, somebody that really, really means a lot to me. And I think that she will be really overcome and really amazed to see this piece when I get it done. Just from me staring at it for the last 40 minutes, I'm like, that is a family history right there. What I am looking at is a family map. I don't know who, but I know this is a family map. This is clear that this is a family home. These are images that are taken like military service and formal photography and all of these things are coming together just from this distance. Like I am seeing it from far away and it's still incredibly moving. And again, if you are a Patreon person, you can see it too because it's amazing. And now the last question that we ask everybody that the slogan of the Stitch Please podcast is that we will help you get your stitch together. Professor Valerie Goodwin, can you please tell us how we might get our stitch together? This is what I have to say. One should have eyes that can see. Really take in what's around you. There's inspiration everywhere. There's inspiration in the smallest thing. Inspiration if you look back at something at a large scale view. You just really have to soak in what's around you and learn how to look at it and learn about those things and learn about what you're attracted to. And maybe you can find out something that will inspire you, becomes part of your style or gives your work meaning. I think that's a quote from the Bible. Do you know? I don't know. But if you say so, I'm going to say yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So one should have eyes that can see. And on that note, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been incredibly generative and so rich. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lisa. You've been listening to Stitch, Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you joining us this week and every week for stories that center Black women, girls, and femmes in sewing. We invite you to join the Black Women Stitch Patreon community with giving levels beginning at $5 a month. Your contributions help us bring the Stitch Please podcast to you every week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together. 